today on Against the Grain, Marie Kondo has popularized a method for decluttering one's home. Feminist media historian Maureen Ryan has put that method and Kondo's TV show under a microscope. I'm CS. Ryan talks about burnout, insecurity, and Kondo's method amidst it all, coming right up. And this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. Does it spark joy? That's the criterion Marie Kondo has set for deciding which household possessions to keep and which to relinquish. Kondo's books are bestsellers, and the TV series Tidying Up with Marie Kondo had a wide following. Thousands, perhaps millions of people, swear by Kondo's advice. But what would a political critique of Kondo's method look like? What does Kondo's advice mean in the context of the prevailing economic order? Does tapping into one's feelings of joy about one's belongings put the brakes on rampant consumerism or not? Maureen Ryan is a feminist media historian and research assistant professor of media arts, film, and media studies at the University of South Carolina. She is the author of Lifestyle Media in American Culture, Gender, Class, and the Politics of Ordinariness. I was drawn to an essay Ryan contributed to a new volume called Insecurity. Her piece has the title, The Burnout Generation Tidies Up. When Maureen Ryan and I connected recently, she began with these comments about Marie Kondo and her impact. So Marie Kondo is a... Japanese organizational expert. She had a book that was a bestseller in the US in 2014 that was called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. And that book was really popular. It was widely read and shared. She, in that book, espouses something, a kind of organizational principle that is just about letting go of things that no longer serve you and having, in general, just kind of an emotional approach to the organization of the home. And she also has all these practical tips, too, about how to store certain kinds of objects that are hard to store. I think the thing that popular culture remembers most about Marie Kondo is, um, in terms of practical advice, is that she, uh, she suggests that people store their garments, particularly shirts, like files, So in other words, not stacked on top of one another um, horizontally, but vertically so that you can see all of your shirts and you can presumably pick them, you know, from among them more easily. So that book was really widely circulated and shared. And in 2019, Netflix released a sort of television makeover version of the show called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. And it really just showcases people going through the what she calls the KonMari method. KonMari is kind of a, a shortened version of her name. Evidently, she had been doing this in Japan with Japanese clients for a number of years before writing the book in 2014, and obviously before becoming sort of a popular um, lifestyle expert in the U.S. This TV series that you say was released by Netflix in 2019 in January, tidying up with Marie Kondo. What happens in each episode? What's what's the pattern? It's fairly typical of a makeover reality program, which is to say most makeover reality programs, and there's many on television, they've been a staple of networks like HGTV, um, and more recently networks like TLC. There's a wide range of them and they all follow a similar template which is that there's a there's a family or a person introduced at the beginning in need of expert advice. And the experts, whether there's one of them or a group of them, in the case of, for instance, um, Queer Eye, right? There's five experts on Queer Eye. They will come in and teach you something you didn't know about your life or some sort of organizational expertise or whether it's cooking or makeup or in the case of uh, Marie Kondo, it's organization. And so she will come to a person's home or to a household that's struggling with just the day-to-day of functioning within their home and figuring out where their stuff is and 
having it accessible and useful. And she shows them how to, first of all, implement those kind of very practical organizational strategies, such as organizing things in a certain way and using boxes and dividers to make things groupable and thus more accessible to you. But she also does, what's unique about Tidying Up with Marie Kondo is actually that she does this emotional coaching as well. I mean, really a lot of lifestyle programming, um, makeover programming is at root about emotional coaching. People have blockages and fears that are preventing them from quote unquote, getting to their best selves or living their best lives. <laughs> However, that's figured on the TV show. And for Marie Kondo, she coaches them through the process of learning to understand their own joy. And the thing that people in the U.S. grasped onto so much about her method, the Conmarie method, is that it at heart is simple, she says. It's about learning to discern what sparks joy that you possess. And then using that question, does this thing spark joy, yes or no, to edit everything in your life, um, all of your material belongings. So she coaches people on the program through that process. And at times it can be really fraught. You know, there's a bunch of different types of people, you know, with different situations. So for instance, there's a woman recovering or dealing with grief from the loss of her husband, the death of her husband. There are people who are starting new lives together, whether that's because of the birth of a baby or they've recently decided to move in together. All these situations produce anxieties and traumas. And so in asking them to think about joy and really become attuned to their own happiness as it is provided by the objects in their lives, then it's presumed they can reach this ultimate happy conclusion. So at the end of the episode, when they've gone through this process, they figured out what makes them happy in their home. They've discarded all the stuff that doesn't make them happy, that just doesn't have a spark of joy. Then it's presumed that they're, they've arrived at some optimized state, not only in the practical sense where they can find things, everything has a purpose in their home now, but also in this emotional sense that they are happier people, better people, and they can more um, successfully take on the challenges of the day because they have only happiness in their lives, in their home lives. So fair to say that there's a scene or scenes in each episode where the person who is being advised by Kondo is literally standing or sitting in front of their possessions and going through each one. And if something sparks joy, then Kondo says, keep it. And if it doesn't spark joy, then Kondo advises them to discard it. Yes, that's exactly how episodes work. And in fact, she says this in her earlier book as well. What she likes to do is have people pile their stuff on their bed <laughs> and it produces a mountain, a literal mountain. It's so high, you can't see over it. And so she has them get everything out and just make it visible and knowable. And then the process of culling can begin. She, she coaches them through it herself at the beginning and then has them record their progress on their own. And so once the episode sort of frames the problem and helps get them acclimated to this method, she has them do it on their own and she'll come back periodically. It's usually time stamped, the television show. So it'll say like two weeks later and we'll see how long it takes people on their own to go through this conmarie process. And then there's the kind of reveal at the end when the process is complete and they've kind of made their life more perfect. Her name is Maureen Ryan. She's research assistant professor of media arts, film and media studies at the University of South Carolina. And we are talking about an essay she wrote titled, The Burnout Generation Tidies Up. That essay can be found in the new volume, Insecurity, edited by Richard Grusin and published by the University of Minnesota Press. I'm C.S. Song, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. In the same month that the TV show, Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, was launched, this is January 2019, an essay by Anne Helen Peterson entitled How Millennials Became the Burnout Generation was published in BuzzFeed. Now, we're going to talk more about the TV show, but this article and what it says about burnout interests you quite a bit, and you relate it to 
the whole Marie Kondo phenomenon. What did Anne Helen Peterson say or argue in this piece? So Anne Helen Peterson actually also has a PhD in film and media studies. So in a way, she is trained in the same kind of work that I do. She's since become kind of a public intellectual and she writes a lot for BuzzFeed about the issues that affect people of a certain generation. This essay on burnout, on millennial burnout, seemed to also strike a chord in the same way. So like Marie Kondo's show, it was seemingly everywhere on Twitter, everybody had an opinion on it. It seemed to be having this moment where people were debating sort of what it meant. And what she claims in this essay is really that that those of us who were born in the 1980s and onward have a particular experience of, of life in the US in particular, although I'm sure it applies to other developed nations too, that is characterized by burnout. So she starts by looking at sort of small examples, like why can't I seem to get my knives sharpened, um, but also thinks through some of the bigger things that seem just impossible to do. She calls it, I think, task paralysis. And so she begins with this question of like, why are some things in everyday life so hard to do? And she, the answer she finds is in the kind of broader structural transformations that have happened in the US since the 1980s onward, um, that she says really just, we're all burnt out. These structural transformations have produced burnout among people of the millennial age. I also wanted to think through that more carefully and extend that argument, not just to people who are technically in the fall under the kind of demographic category of millennial, but who experience the life conditions that she's describing today. So of course, everybody um, in the US is dealing with some of the same crises and transformations that she's discussing. So what she's really describing when talking about burnout is what happens under what scholars refer to as the kind of neoliberal turn. The neoliberal turn. So how would you describe or define neoliberalism? Neoliberalism is a set of economic principles emanating from a few key thinkers in the 1960s that was widely influential in shaping US and UK policy um, from about the mid-1970s on. Scholars point to the election of Reagan in the US and Margaret Thatcher in the UK in 1980 or so as sort of the moment at which neoliberal economic ideas, which had largely been academic up to that point, to actual policy. And those policies that were implemented turned the government away from the belief that the government's principal role was to provide a social safety net for citizens and away from implementing policies and programs to do that, including social security, poverty assistance programs, things of that nature and toward the belief that the state should incentivize individuals to provide many of those things for themselves, either through employment benefits at private companies or through responsibility for one's own health um, or through accessing consumer goods through the marketplace. Now, the problem with the neoliberal model and what scholars sometimes call the neoliberal regime as government has largely been successful in doing that over the last three decades or so, is that one, some goods are necessarily public and thus ought to be provided for by the government. And those include things like um, shared infrastructure, clean air and water and regulations to ensure clean air and water, those sorts of things. Individuals simply can't um, guarantee those things on their own for themselves. And secondly, increasingly important, private companies are themselves undergoing these same structural transformations away from providing benefits to individuals and employees, right? White collar employment doesn't guarantee those social safety nets in the same ways that it did perhaps 30 years ago. Um, we also should remember that the majority of workers in the US are not white collar. I read something yesterday that suggested it was only 35% of people in the US work in offices. The rest of the labor force are in the service industry, they're in the gig economy, what scholars sometimes think of as casualized labor. And none of those workers have 
access to retirement benefits, um, sometimes health insurance, all of those things are no longer guaranteed by employment. And so what happens amidst all of these transformations is that the burden of provisioning for one's good life, however that's imagined, and in the US that's typically imagined as a middle-class life with um, homeownership, maybe some kids, a little bit of grass that you mow on the weekends, right? All of that, that conceptualization of the good life um, as a suburban middle-class life is no longer really possible in the same way because of the way that the middle class has been hollowed out by these neoliberal economic policies. And so was Anne Helen Peterson in that piece called How Millennials Became the New Burnout Generation, was she linking the burnout she was observing and commenting on to political, economic, social conditions created by, created under neoliberalism? Peterson is describing these things, I think, indirectly. She talks a lot about the experience of, for a millennial who has grown up amidst these transformations, the experience of increased pressure to make one's extracurriculars during one's education, for instance, really count towards, you know, increased access to jobs. The fact that young people growing up during that era were not allowed to have a lot of undisciplined time, that things were very rigid because parents sort of anticipating this and thinking about their children's future in this climate were always trying to optimize their chances for success. Because within this neoliberal regime, success is so much harder to achieve those status markers of middle-class life, such as homeownership, are especially now, right, in the wake even of the pandemic and the kind of changes in real estate that that has precipitated, have become even more fraught since I wrote this essay in 2019. So homeownership is so difficult to achieve. White collar employment is so difficult to achieve. And what Peterson is describing in the essay is just living in that reality. So it's not always something people are thinking about directly, but it does produce this kind of grinding exhaustion that that folks who are young people, you know, she's focused mostly on millennials, but I think this applies across many categories, that young people are dealing with just how to make a life in these circumstances. And it affects people's mental health in all of these um, perhaps unanticipated ways. So if Peterson in her article was talking about, I mean, you just mentioned it, the pressure that millennials experience are subjected to from an early age to to cultivate, you know, marketable skills to, quote, optimize, as you said, does this language or discourse of optimization, is that reflected in tidying up with Marie Kondo, the TV show series, in your opinion? Yes. And I think it's actually the central logic of the television show, which is why I was so interested in thinking through these two things together, Marie Kondo's show and the burnout essay, because the process of, of learning to listen to your joy and figuring out how to cull away all of the inessentials is really a process of optimization. It's a process of making yourself, in some ways, into a better neoliberal subject because you're better able to withstand the vicissitudes of the market. In some ways, neoliberalization is all about subjecting everything to the logic of markets, um, the economic market. And so if you can only figure out how to become a leaner, greener machine as an individual, and that starts with figuring out your joy, but then it extends to your household, right? If your household can just function better, then it is, I think, the idea of the show that you can become, one, better insulated against burnout, right? Because you are able, first of all, if we're to take Peterson's example of like, not being able to sharpen your knives because it's always at the bottom of your to-do list, um, if you've optimized according to what Marie Kondo suggests, you know what all your what shape all your knives are in. It's easier to sort of feel energized in your home and your tasks and your day to day. But two, I think it's also it's not just to buffet against 
the vicissitudes of the market, I think it also acclimates you to the neoliberal market logic that you're better, you're a better neoliberal citizen within that because you become much more flexible. And the neoliberal labor economy is certainly all about flexibility and being able to spring into work if, for instance, you're called up that day in the casualized workforce or if you're an Uber driver or something like that. Um, yeah, I think it's just about making sure that people can function in this new reality of neoliberalism. That's the voice of Maureen Ryan. She teaches in the School of Visual Art and Design at the University of South Carolina. She's a feminist media historian, author of Lifestyle Media in American Culture, Gender, Class, and the Politics of Ordinariness. We are talking about an essay she wrote about the Marie Kondo phenomenon uh, that appears in the new volume, Insecurity. We have a link to that book and to Maureen's book on our website, againstthegrain.org. My name is C.S. Song. So part of what you're saying there is that the agenda of this TV show is to make people feel better in the face of insecurity, in the face of insecure employment and housing and social service conditions, can you talk a little bit more about that and maybe the sense of control that people are encouraged to feel by Marie Kondo as they get their house, their domestic space in order? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And the people that she works with on the show, so there's only, um, I think there's only eight episodes. Every person she works with is dealing in some way with some kind of insecurity the folks that I focus on in my essay, there are a couple of case studies that I draw out. One of them is a couple who has moved to LA from Michigan for explicitly, they say, because there are no job opportunities in their fields in Michigan. One is a hairstylist and one is a musician. And so they have downsized from a four bedroom home to a two bedroom apartment that they're renting along with their two kids. And so in some ways, you know, depending on the life circumstances of the people featured on the show, there's very direct connections to this kind of burnout um, and to the neoliberalization of everyday life that I've been describing. I mean, folks are dealing with reduced job opportunities, potentially reduced economic circumstances. At least three of the episodes that I'm thinking of off the top of my head are about young people who are trying to begin building a life one of the things I talk a lot about in the essay is this concept of adulting and how it has become fetishized in a way among millennials for as this kind of idealized status that is always receding further and further out of the realm of possibility just because of the difficulty, as I said, of dealing with housing prices and dealing with getting your life off the ground and getting that middle-class employment. Like if people do attain it, it sometimes takes a decade or more, much longer than it did in earlier generations. And so the three um, episodes that deal with young people starting their lives, you know, Kondo comes in and talks to them about how to organize their sock drawer. Um, but in other ways, she's sort of helping them get used to the idea that they might need to move again, <laughs> that they might need to up and leave this apartment if if they're able to get the, the dream job that they're hustling to get. Um, and in that way, it sort of primes people to become mobile, flexible workers. You referred to how the Kondo program, the TV program, again, it's called Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, in your view, encourages people to become better neoliberal subjects in a way, to buy into the neoliberal logic and you mentioned uh, the flexibility it encourages, it promotes among the, the subjects, right? The, the people who are being advised by Marie Kondo. Uh, what about the logic of neoliberal consumerism, the buying of stuff? And, you know, one might think, well, she's really telling people to get rid of stuff. She's telling people, get rid of what doesn't spark joy, right? That's the main criterion. So do you see 
any way in which the show and the KonMari method does somehow encourage people to get in there and accumulate and go out and buy consumer products? That's a really interesting question. And I've thought a lot about this because in the popular discourse around Marie Kondo, you know, for instance, the way she's talked about on Twitter, people think of her as being, um, well, one, people have accused her of being overly punitive and in demanding that people get rid of things. There's a misconception about her that she only wants people to have 30 books. So on the one hand, she's associated with this kind of really, which is not, I should say, really what she's advocating for in her method. But people believe in some ways that she is very strict and minimalist and austere. And in that sense, she could be seen as being anti-consumerist. Um, there's another dimension to this that comes up in the book and on her show, which is that she doesn't really against a lot of other lifestyle television, which at the end of the episode, you look around and you see, wow, they've made over this person's life by giving them all new clothes and like remodeling their home so that it's on trend. Marie Kondo's show doesn't do that. She often, for instance, when she checks up on people's progress in the KonMari method, she will bring them like old cardboard boxes. So even in her organizational method, she's not necessarily espousing the purchasing of things. You know, her philosophy seems to be about using what you have to implement these organizational systems. And so those are two things that might suggest that she's sort of anti-consumerist and that um, that in one way is, could be seen as good. On the other hand, what I ultimately say about her program, the Conmary Method, is that because it resorts to this idea of joy and the way that it invites you to think about your joy in things, that it actually does continue to invite you to remain in a cycle of accumulation and discarding. And that that in itself doesn't change. Like if you become attuned to joy at the end of this process, then it opens up the possibility that new goods will also bring you joy. And that the solution to that potential risk of overclutter and becoming disorganized again is simply to always have your eye on joy. <laughs> and, and like you'll get rid of the old things in your home as you make way for new things to take their place in your home. And so in that sense, it is not at odds with consumerism at all. In fact, it makes room for consumerism very explicitly. And one of the other things I conclude on in this essay is the idea that, you know, there's an ecological and a social cost to having mountains and mountains of things that you get rid of all the time if you're continually engaged in the Comrie process. There were news articles in 2019 after the show came out that suggested that um, Salvation Armies and other kinds of donation centers received peak donations after the show came out and that a lot of them didn't know what to do with all of it. You know, we have this fantasy as consumers that when we give something to Goodwill, it goes on to a better home. Well, they can't sell everything that we donate and a lot of it ends up being thrown away <laughs> despite our best efforts. Um, or being sold overseas to be turned into, you know, recycled textiles. And there's a whole other like secondary economy there. And if we just continue to kind of discard things at this American middle-class pace, then we are continuing to contribute to all of those ecological and social problems. Yeah. And just on a personal note, what you were saying about people seeing quite possibly new goods as rewards that spark joy, and thus seeing the KonMari method, Marie Kondo's method is dovetailing with, as you write, the ideologies embedded in the consumer industries. I know that if I got rid of everything that didn't spark joy, I would probably need new stuff. My guest is Maureen Ryan. She's a feminist media historian based at the University of South Carolina, who researches and teaches classes on television, film, and digital media. Her essay in the new volume, Insecurity, edited by Richard Grusin, is called The Burnout Generation Tidies Up. So in this article, you, as you mentioned, 
analyze a few episodes of this Tidying Up with Marie Kondo TV show that was released in January 2019. And one of them features an immigrant named Sanita. She is an immigrant from Pakistan, and she is asked, she is urged by Marie Kondo in this episode to go through her stuff and to, again, decide what sparks joy and what doesn't. Sunita has a lot of unworn garments, unworn Pakistani garments. Talk about what happens in that scene when Marie Kondo is, is having her go through these garments, evaluate them, and make decisions about them. Yes, Sunita is Pakistani-American. She has a lot of Pakistani scarves and um, garments that she has been holding onto and not wearing. She, in interview segment, she talks about the fact that she feels really disconnected from her Pakistani family. She lives in LA and maybe they live elsewhere and she's not able to see them a lot. She's also married to a white guy named Aaron. And part of the central conflict of this episode is that they, the two of them, Aaron and Sunita, cannot agree on what to keep and how to pare things down. And the way that the episode unfolds is that Sanita is really depicted as stubborn. She's unwilling to let go of her joyless objects and to kind of get conscripted into this joy economy. And I think that in the case of the Pakistani garments, she says explicitly, like, I, I wish I had more opportunities to wear these. You know, she misses her family and her heritage and the uh, opportunity she has to express those. Um, ultimately, what Kondo does is helps her figure out how to store them. Again, I think she has her store them so that they're sort of filed. She can see them all rather than being laid on top of one another in a, in a kind of messy drawer. And in the show, this is kind of depicted as a resolution that she needs to help her. Um, first of all, it affirms them as joyful objects, mm -hmm. right? She gets to keep them because they remind her of home and that's joy producing. And second of all, it allows her to kind of integrate them back into her wardrobe so that she can have that connection to people and a homeland that's far away. Um, but I also think that there's something really interesting beyond that going on in this episode. I mean, the other thing that Sunita is stubborn about is getting rid of her children's baby stuff. They have hopes to have another child and she wants to keep all of those baby things because they anticipate maybe needing them again in the future, although there's no concrete plans for that. And so in both the case of her baby stuff and these Pakistani scarves, you know, she's figured as this stubborn figure who won't get with the program, so to speak, and, and get rid of things. And I'm interested in the example of Sunita because it it sort of shows you that that joy is compulsory in a way on these shows, on this show. And if you can't figure out clearly, this causes joy and that doesn't, and make that really clear distinction in the moment, you're figured as wrong-headed, stubborn, even pathologized against the more reasonable spouse who's like, but honey, do we really need to keep all of this stuff, right? And that pathologization happens <laughs> more on the show to folks that are immigrants. So there's Sunita and there's another example that I talk about, a guy who has Guatemalan heritage and also really has trouble letting go of things from his past. And I think that that's significant, right? Because if we think about how burnout affects people, you know, those who are white, middle class, and have a certain degree of inherited privilege do better in these circumstances of neoliberalism and burnout than folks who have even fewer resources. And that's often the case of people of color, of immigrants, right, who are starting from nothing and who might really have a reasonable <laughs> expectation that they should keep everything just in case, right? Because life experience has told them that everything is unpredictable. Things could be taken away again so quickly. And as you said, the cultural significance of the things one possesses can be important. The objects are sometimes viewed as binding people to their heritage, their homelands. Right. I think that that's true. It's certainly the case in um, 
Sunita's episode and then in Mario's episode, the Guatemalan immigrant I mentioned, he, um, for him, it's not only about family heritage and his memories of his father, but also of a particular kind of American success that he um, was exposed to as a young person. So in Mario's case, it's sneakers. It's like basketball sneakers. And he collects them because he, as a young immigrant kid, idolized American athletes that, you know, um, American sports is one of the only arenas in which people of color <laughs> can really be fantastically successful by on America's terms, right? And so for him, that was a way of accessing the American dream. And Marie Kondo comes in and is like, do all of these really spark joy? Um, and so at the end of that episode, they convince and sort of educate him and reorient him towards getting rid of not all of them, right? But paring that collection down and making room for the baby that he's expecting with his wife. So that also becomes about your ability to um, fit into the neoliberal kind of regime and still make room for a child, but doing so in these reduced circumstances. They also live in like a small two bedroom townhome. And so it's like, they don't have room to have a big attachment to sneakers and still be able to have the resources to care for a new baby. It's interesting because this idea that getting free of clutter confers a sense of security and preparedness. I mean, I think some of us can can relate to that, uh, but perhaps others can't. I mean, do you see clutter in certain cases conferring that sense of a security, that sense of being protected from kind of the, you know, the insecurity all around us. And also, I wonder if uh, Roland Bart uh, said anything about minimalism and the social classes that are drawn to it that is relevant here. Yes. Yeah, so Roland Barth is a French theorist who has written a lot about popular culture. He was writing in the 60s and he has a great essay about the working class cuisines in some of the women's magazines of his day. And he was really interested in how they were all so, every dish was so elaborate. It was molded into the shape of a fish or a flower and it was covered in all this sauce and adorned with garnishes. And, you know, he he observed that as a working class magazine, that this was full of, of ideas and aspirations rather than things that people would really make and that a more frank and minimalist cuisine was really um, associated with the upper classes. And so in that sense, I think it is true that minimalism is the privilege of the elite. You can also just think about how expensive like minimalist modernist furniture is compared to um, <laughs> the things that are easier and cheaper to get, which might be a little bit more ornate, right? So I think it is the case that the immigrants who are featured on Tidying Up with Marie Kondo are depicted as having a harder time letting go of things. And the other, in addition to Roland Barthes, one of the other authors that I am drawing on in that section is Irina Dimitrescu, who I believe is also in, in her essay, talks about being an immigrant who had to leave everything and start over with her family when they emigrated to the U.S. And you know, she writes that there's a, a there's a safety, a security in being able to accumulate. It's like you can let your things acquire dust and feel like that means that you won't have to get up in the middle of the night and start over again. That for the immigrant experience and the refugee experience, that there's a reason that they don't want to be conscripted into the joy economy that Marie Kondo's show offers. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Maureen Ryan is my guest. She is Research Assistant Professor of Media Arts, Film and Media Studies, and Associate Director of the Humanities Collaborative at the University of South Carolina. I take it that what you just said relates to your argument that the method espoused by Marie Kondo is not exactly attuned to issues around race, gender, and class. I would say so. And in fact, if we're, if as I do in the essay, if we're relating it to 
Peterson's burnout essay, um, Peterson's essay incited similar criticisms that she was describing her own experience as a white middle class person, millennial person, and that what she's describing about burnout and the difficulty of starting and building a life and adulting and all of that is even worse for people of color, for immigrants, for and also worse for women. And so I think that that is a fair estimation, and it's one that I see borne out on Tidying Up with Marie Kondo, just in the way that the immigrants uh, that I just mentioned are portrayed. And, as, and I also see it in the way that women have a unique burden that gets um, addressed on the show. If minimalism is, as you said, the privilege of elites, uh, that is, elites are more likely to enjoy, as you write, an unencumbered view of possessions, then can we then say that, and are you saying that Kondo's advice, Marie Kondo's advice, is better suited to people with more privilege, people who enjoy that unencumbered view and therefore are more likely to be willing to discard things that don't spark joy? I think in a way, yes. The idea that you can fully optimize yourself and become, um, through that process, like better acclimated to the conditions of living and working in America today, I think that that is in some ways classist, or we can say classed and raced advice. Um, but there's also something about it that is only necessary for people who are who are less privileged, right? Because if you if you are gainfully employed in a white collar job and you've got a fair amount of resources available to you, you need this advice less, right? I mean, everybody needs it to some degree because, for instance, if we are going to think about a middle class person with a white collar job and one with benefits, those benefits are maybe not as good as they have been in past generations. And so even the even that person is probably going to benefit from a little optimization. Um, but I think it is a contradiction in the show that it is advice best suited for people of a certain amount of privilege. And it's needed most by those who have less privilege. It must be asked, Maureen, you are not anti-joy, are you? You're, you're not against people gaining some a sense of control over and happiness with their domestic situation, are you? Thank you for asking that. I felt compelled to um, issue my own caveat at the end if you hadn't asked me. I'm not. I mean, I think if you watch the show, there's a lot also, first of all, to love about these families. I mean, the Merciers in particular, the family that I mentioned that moved from Michigan to LA for better employment prospects. And, you know, they're so, they have such a good attitude about this project and they're so upbeat and you just really want them to have the success that they deserve. And I think that's true of all of these people. And I don't, I don't want, I hope that it is not the case that people take away from this essay that I'm against joy. I think that what I'm trying to say is that joy gets instrumentalized to serve a different master than perhaps we're aware in the logic of this show. How so? In what way is joy instrumentalized? Well, I think it's instrumentalized to make people better adapted to the conditions of neoliberal life, right? And I think that those conditions are fundamentally, um, on some level, inhumane. And that if we have joy in our lives, it should be on our own terms, right? And I think, again, of the examples of the immigrant subjects of the show who are sort of like, what if I don't want to figure out if this is a joy object or not? What if I want to sit with my complicated feelings about these items from my past, right? And in that way, they refuse the idea that you have to sort of be knowable to yourself at all times and be optimized in this way. Um, I think that if having a thousand, you know, a collection of a thousand of something brings you joy, then like that should be okay. Even if it makes you a little bit, even if it makes your next move into the next apartment because your rent was hiked up and you have to move, even if it makes that move a little bit harder. So I guess what I want to say is that 
there shouldn't be the expectation that our joy and what brings us joy as individuals gets mobilized in the service of the system that dehumanizes all of us in some way, that we should be allowed to have joy in our own terms and and not let us enter into our relationship with joy in such an economic and clinical way. I mean, there's a sense in which the, I call it the joy economy in my essay, because I think that it's a very clinical way of experiencing joy, if you're using it as a metric for how to run your household. Maureen Ryan is my guest. Uh, Maureen, you are the author of Lifestyle Media in American Culture, Gender, Class, and the Politics of Ordinariness. It's published by Routledge. What is that book about? That book is a cultural history of lifestyle media in the U.S. So I began in the 60s when the concept of lifestyle really takes off. I mean, I was interested in some ways in thinking about what lifestyle even is. It's a concept that seems to be everywhere and also nowhere. Like nobody really knows what it means and yet it gets applied to all kinds of consumer enterprises and also a lot of television. A lot of television that's or, that's aimed at women, including gardening shows, cooking shows, makeover shows, those sorts of things. So I was really interested in unpacking what we mean when we call something lifestyle, where that term has come from, and and what kinds of cultural assumptions about class and ordinariness we overload into the concept of lifestyle. So it really begins in the 60s, and it looks at the concept of lifestyle as it kind of first emerged in discourses of difference in the 60s and 70s, having to do with the sudden visibility Um, I guess I'm saying that in air quotes, of uh, gays and lesbians. They were marked as having a lifestyle, whereas the white mainstream did not, right? Um, African-Americans, there was talk about a Black lifestyle and marking that as unique um, from the lifestyles of, again, uh, white Americans. And then also the hippie counterculture. So the hippies had lifestyles, other people didn't. And from there, I think through kind of how that term and what we believe about social difference gets kind of translated into domestic advice. So Martha Stewart, HGTV, uh, the Food Network. And then I also look at blogging and um, Instagram as sites where lifestyle gets enacted. So I think at heart, that book is really about and it's a, it's a similar um, set of concerns to this essay that we're discussing today. That book at heart is about the receding availability of middle class life in an era when it is becoming more and more proliferate in images and in media that says, this is what your life should look like, right? All of the depictions of lifestyles on HGTV and in those the programs that I talk about um, are premised on a certain kind of class access and race, but they are premised as something everybody can achieve. And so I'm kind of unpacking those contradictions by looking at a series of lifestyle media programs and magazines and Instagram accounts and that sort of thing for clues as to how that how that transformation occurred over the course of the past, since the post-world period to today. Um, and thinking through the politics of that for how we evaluate ourselves against these representations of quote-unquote people's real lives on the screen and in magazines and on social media. Were white folks, white consumers of lifestyle media, were they encouraged to feel envy toward those subcultures, whether it be, you know, LGBT or ethnic cultures that had lifestyles were represented as having lifestyles? That's an interesting way of framing it. I think that initially it was a discourse that was internal to those groups. That's especially the case with uh, Black publications that started to see themselves as a market, (laughs) that the Black lifestyle is something that doesn't need to emulate the way that the white middle class lives. And that they can be, um, they can articulate their own meanings and values internally. But there's also 
At the same time, there's a lot of market research happening in this period in the 60s and 70s. And they began to use market researchers, that is, began to use lifestyle as a way of differentiating among different kinds of consumers. And so lifestyle as a concept also then gets applied to these niche groups that are seen to have more cultural capital. So like, yes, I think in the case of hippies, it was like um, jeans are part of the new hippie lifestyle. And if you buy jeans, you can sort of partake in that. And so it becomes a kind of marketing discourse that allows companies and marketers to hail people as individuals that have like distinct taste. But what it also does is hail them into a class of consumption that, um, again, is in the service of those companies, right? So once, for instance, the cooking show becomes the lifestyle cooking show, there's a new kind of classed address that happens and people are encouraged to think about their presentation of self to others in this different way. If it's a lifestyle cooking show, you want to make something that incorporates color and uh, would be great for a dinner party. So it becomes about social aspiration in a different way. Maureen Ryan, feminist media historian. She teaches in the School of Visual Art and Design at the University of South Carolina, author of Lifestyle Media in American Culture, also co-editor with Jessalyn Keller of Emergent Feminisms, Complicating a Post-Feminist Media Culture. We've been talking mostly about an article she wrote called The Burnout Generation Tidies Up, which you can find in the volume Insecurity, published by the University of Minnesota Press. Maureen, thanks for your work and for joining us today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And this is CS, suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>